Hello, my name is Liam Doherty. I'm a senior partner with Stratus Consulting, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the latest episode of the Stratus Insights podcast series. Stratus Consulting is a partner-led consultancy comprising the most experienced team of employment relations and industrial relations practitioners in Ireland. Each partner has over 30 years' experience in supporting, guiding, and advising employers on strategic EOR projects. Stratus operates at leadership team, chief executive and board levels to support organisations who want to lead and drive change, particularly where there's a strategic employment relations dimension. Over the next four episodes of our Insights podcast, we will focus on the question, are we heading towards some form of mandatory union recognition in Ireland? Each episode will address particular aspects of this question. Given the importance of the topic, I'm delighted to be joined by Brendan McGinty, Managing Partner Stratus Consulting, and Kevin Duffy, former Chairman of the Labour Court. In this first of four episodes, we pose the question to Brendan and Kevin as to whether the current review of collective bargaining and industrial relations can deliver a balanced outcome. And if so, what will that look like? We will also address whether voluntarism, as we know it, is at an end. Can I open up the conversation by asking you first, Brendan, can this review of collective bargaining and IR really deliver a balanced outcome? And what would, look, what would that look like to you? Thanks, Liam. Um, and nice to start with the the easy question. Mm-hmm. Um, and but look, it's it's great to have a, a chance to kick this uh, issue around, and particularly with 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 Kevin. I think that's going to be hugely uh, challenging uh, because. Uh, and and first of all, I should say it's really important that there is a balanced outcome. Uh, uh, but in arriving at that, I think there are risks for for everybody. Uh, as it was on the employer side. It's critically important that whatever the outcome is, that it doesn't uh, fundamentally undermine our attraction as a location for investment, uh, our uh, competitiveness standing uh, and matters of that nature that are clearly hugely important, not least, of course, to the inward investment uh, community uh, as as well as uh, many other employers and sectors. Um, But I also think it's really important uh, that the review has been framed not just in respect of collective bargaining, but also about uh, industrial relations, the industrial relations landscape, because I think if there is to be balance in terms of the outcome, it's also important that there is a long, hard look being taken at how all of this works in terms of the dispute resolution uh, bodies, and also the opportunity, perhaps, for further reform of how trade disputes are are ultimately uh, regulated as well, because I think for for from what I am hearing from many employers with uh, with whom we would interact, I think there is an expectation here that uh, if the collective bargaining agenda is looked at to enhance the role and opportunity for trade unions to engage in collective bargaining. The open question is, well, what does that mean in terms of the wider uh, landscape and what is the implication that that has for voluntarism as we have uh, tended to, to know it? And um, I, w- I would be aware, for example, that, that an understandable issue that is of concern to the trade unions is also around the whole notion of broadening the remit, for example, of sectoral level bargaining. Uh, we, we know there have been lots of issues and problems in particular sectors, uh, including historically associated with the JLCs and 
uh, some of the joint industrial councils of of of, of old, so to speak, um, and various efforts have been made legislatively to to ad- address some of the the, the problems uh, with those uh, structures. But as suppose fundamentally, uh, if if there's to be a focus on promoting those sorts of agreements, which one could anticipate from a public interest point of view. Um, we all know as practitioners that the only way those really work successfully is if they're established uh, and uh, actively worked by voluntary agreement by the parties and parties that are ultimately representative of the majority of uh, the interest in the particular sector. So I suppose in a nutshell, you know, I think uh, I would be worried about whether we will get a balanced outcome. It is important that we get that balanced outcome. But I think looking at it holistically, it can't just be about the collective bargaining agenda as it has been historically espoused, for example, by the trade union movement, which is understandable from their point of view. But from an employer point of view, it will also be about uh, do any changes fundamentally impact on how I need to engage with my my staff uh, and my employees, particularly if I'm already operating a sophisticated uh, direct engagement model? And and secondly, what other reforms are being contemplated to the wider uh, uh, industrial relations uh, landscape that make doing business better for everybody uh, in Ireland? Thanks, Brennan. Kevin, what's your assessment uh, of, of of that question? Well, first of all, I think uh, given the makeup of the group that's looking at this question, uh, I think uh, it, the, the outcome will be balanced because the the um, group that's dealing with it is is, is particularly well balanced. Um, but in terms of, of where it's all going, it's a debate that's been knocking around now in my experience since the the early to mid 1990s, right? And um, words are used without, I think, a common understanding of what they mean. And and, and that's particularly true about the, the question when we talk about union recognition. Um, what does that mean? It, 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 it really has no meaning unless it involves uh, a process by which uh, trade unions, if workers wish to be represented by trade unions, and employers engage with each other. So in many respects, it is about collective bargaining. It's about a mechanism by which workers can have an input at some level into the determination of the terms and conditions under which they work. Now, um, while it may be possible to bring about a situation, and I I use the word may deliberately, uh, where an an employer could be obliged to talk to a trade union in certain circumstances. And indeed, there are circumstances already in which that is the case uh, in in, in relation to to certain issues that arise. And that could be, theoretically, that could be mandatory. But collective bargaining is only of value if it results in a collective agreement. And the difficulty here is, how do you bring about a situation where people are obliged to make collective agreements? I mean, it it simply seems to me an impossibility, certainly within our current system. Um, And maybe it does involve looking at the broader landscape 
fact, I think it, it, it probably will involve looking at the broader landscape. Um, but right now, um, if parties disagree, uh, there are the institutions of the state available to them, but they're voluntary and the outcome is voluntary. And there's an upside and a downside on that, depending on where you're coming from. For, I suppose, categories and groups of workers who have a lot of industrial muscle, that's fine because ultimately, at the end of the day, they can flex their muscle. In circumstances where they don't have that, right, uh, then it's of little value to them. So, you know, there, there, there are complex questions there. And it really just goes, it's, it's not just a question of saying uh, unions should be recognised in certain circumstances. Recognised for what? And what is the object of that particular exercise? And, and these are, these are f fundamental questions that have never been fully, fully answered. And I think you know, a bottom line position, and I'm certainly not talking for the trade union movements a long time since I was had any authority to do that, if I ever had it. But um, fundamentally, it's, it seems to me to be about a principle, right? The principle being that working people, as I said, should have a right to an input into the terms and conditions under which they work. Um, and that in, involves some level of engagement. You know, it can happen in many places on a one-to-one -one basis, but that's really a, a bit of a nonsense in many situations. So I, I, I'd be inclined to think that um, these are the, the, the fundamental questions that have to be grasped and, and, and never have been up to now. I mean, there are other aspects to this, and Brendan touched on them, and I agree with him, the whole thing about uh, sectoral bargaining and, and the JLC system. And that's a system that's been there, I suppose, certainly in, a, in, in the formal sense since 1946 and even before that, the, the old trade boards. Um, and there are JLCs established for a raft of employments, right? but all but two of them don't function. And, you know, if, if, if the J, and, and JLCs are in, in reality a form of collective bargaining. Right? It's, it's, it's collective bargaining in a different context, but ultimately it's employers and unions negotiating and coming to an agreement at a level which is then generally applicable within the sector. And, um, you know, I, 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 the other thing that I think is important here is that Ireland is very much an outlier in terms of collective bargaining coverage, not so much in terms of trade union density, because you know it's about twenty four percent in Ireland is trade of workers are in trade unions, and collective bargaining coverage is about thirty four percent. And short of the Scandinavian countries, we're not that far out in terms of. I mean, if you take France for example, which is I think illustrates the point where you have about 10% of the workforce of trade unions, but 98% or 99% are covered by collective bargaining. And Indeed. it's because of a different system. Um, and uh, and that, I think, is, is, is really where the focus should be initially. 
particularly if you're talking about expanding um, coverage of collective bargaining in Ireland, because if, you, if all of the JLCs were active, that, that 34% would increase significantly. And there are many sectors uh, which, you know, are, the characteristics of, are, of which are such that uh, JLCs could usefully be established uh, to, to, to regulate them in these terms. Um, and that's, um, that's an area, I think, that there, there should be a strong focus on. But to come back to the, the first point, I think before we start talking about mandatory recognition and all the rest of it, we need to be clear as to what, what the object of the exercise is. And I said, in my view, um, the object is to provide a mechanism by which workers have an input. Right? And that can be the straightforward, traditional way that we all understand. They're members of unions. The union and the employer concludes a collective agreement. And that's, if you like, the, the traditional model. But there are other ways in which it can be done as well. And I think they, okay. they need to be explored. Thanks, Kevin. Just uh, actually as a follow on to that, I, I'm, I'm curious, you know, in, in talking about some of the principles involved and and in particular in looking at potential outcomes that might involve mandatory obligations. Is there a danger that voluntarism as we know it is 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 at an end or is at a near mm -hmm. end of life stage? Well, just like collective bargaining, I often wonder what voluntarism is, particularly in, in the present context. Um, you might elaborate on that. All right. Well, first of all, it's a, I, I suppose it's a long time since our system uh, was purely voluntarist. You know, we, there's, there's legislation covering many aspects, certainly in, in individual areas, but in some collective areas as well. Uh, and there's nothing voluntarist about that. And even, I suppose, to... to illustrate the point um, when I started with the Labour Court in 1997 uh, about oh, 90% 95% of the work was pure industrial relations that was voluntarist people didn't have to go they didn't have to pay any attention to what came out by and large they did uh, a percentage of them did but um, it, it was voluntary in that sense Right uh, now, uh, since the reforms in 2015, I think about I think the split is about 70, 30 mm. in in employment well, the, the rights. Balance has shifted. Yeah, usually, it's yeah. hugely mm. shifted. And if you go to the WRC, I gather it's about eighty five percent is is our, what we could describe as mandatory mm. issues. So. You know, that's that, that that's a reality. Um, but I'd be inclined to think that the, the fact that employers may be obliged to at least listen to the views of their workers as expressed through a trade union isn't in itself going to alter the situation. What I was saying was that I, I wonder to what extent is that really going to bring about the sort of results that people want because people only reach agreement if they want to reach agreement and if there are advantages for both sides in reaching an agreement you can never force them to do that right mm -hmm. and I suppose that's that's the, the essence of voluntarism and but the other very important dimension to voluntarism is that 
the institutions which are there uh, issue a recommendations rather than decisions in pure OER cases, which, as I said, are a, dim- a diminishing aspect of the overall landscape. But they, um, and people are free to reject them. And there have been times over the years when you know the the, the champions of voluntarism shifted from one side to the other. And uh, if you if you look at the Commission on Industrial Relations, which was way back when I had heard of me head, um, <laughs> um, I mean that was that broke down because it was heading towards curbing that yeah. voluntarism, mm. and that was being led by the FUE at that time. Now I'd be inclined to think if you were to if you were to, if you were to, if you if you listen to what some people on the union side are saying, right? they're beginning to wonder about the value of voluntarism. And the other thing, and again, going back to my former existence, before I left, uh, got somebody to have a look and see, well, how many Labour Court recommendations are being rejected or Mm -hmm. ignored, Mm -hmm. right? Which is the same thing. And where is it coming from? There were more employers in that category than unions. So, you know, and and th- I, that may be a reason why you know u- unions are, are are maybe reviewing their position, but um, I don't necessarily think that it is. I mean, we don't want a situation. I don't think anybody wants a situation where every aspect of voluntarism is gone, uh, particularly the capacity for people to make deals between themselves, mm-hmm. and if issues arise, to have those issues dealt with outside of the mainstream legal systems. I don't think we want to get to a stage where um, the um, collective agreements have the status of contracts and all of that sort of stuff, which you see in some European countries, but I'm not sure that we anybody would really want to go down that road. But I'm inclined to think that, you know, voluntarism, like everything else, it, it, it's, uh, it moves on, it changes over time, and it certainly has changed over time in, in, in our system, um, you know, as I said. But I don't think that requiring uh, employers to listen to their employees, uh, perhaps to consider what they have to say, to afford them an opportunity to be represented in saying what they have to say, would in in and of itself undermine the the basic concepts that at the end of the day people are free to make agreements or not to make agreements uh and if they if they if they don't make agreements well they don't make agreements um okay thanks for that kevin uh, brennan i'm just curious of you know your view in relation to that issue around voluntarism mm. and 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 whether you see it has been uh, you know, at an end or or, or, or near end, um, or or you know, is there another perspective uh, that you have on it? Well, look, there's a huge amount of issues bundled up in that question, uh, understandably, because look, we all know how foundational the whole sort of um, voluntarist approach to our IR system has been for both sides of, 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 of industry over, uh, you know, so many years. And I suppose the, the 
you know, a starting point has always tended to be, look, this, you know, the state doesn't impose uh, a solution in terms of, you know, the, how, how people want to conduct their business from an ER uh, point of view. Uh, yes, you know, the state has provided the machinery by which people can sort out their differences. And we're, we're blessed to have, obviously, institutions as sophisticated and as mature as obviously the, the Workplace Relations uh, Commission and, and the Labour Court. Uh, with hugely experienced uh, people, you know, in, involved in uh, doing their business. Um, but we have to acknowledge, of course, that, look, there has been uh, and, and it's partly obviously on the back of the growth in the individual rights agenda that, that Kevin has rightly alluded to uh, and jurisprudence of one form or another over the years. But, you know, the voluntarist principle has kind of been 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 chipped away. Um, and if that's the case, I suppose there's a fundamental challenge or question, I think, that I suspect the review group is, is, is having to uh, grapple with as well, which is that, you know, if, if, if the parameters of voluntarism, because, for example, of trade union ambitions around the collective bargaining space, is to be uh, narrowed or tightened in some way, there probably equally has to be a, a, an acknowledgement that, you know, voluntarism, that can't happen just for one side of industry or for that matter, it just can't happen, you know, in the private sector. Like, so, for example, you know, if you wanted to uh, identify some kind of, you know, uh, difficult issues, you know, you, you you would pose the question, well, what's the implication of, of that, for example, in the public sector or indeed for public sector uh, trade unions who, you know, have obviously has had, by and large have access to collective bargaining arrangements uh, as, 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 a, as, a, as a given. Uh, or indeed, for that matter, in the private sector, if you think about some of the legacy issues about uh, pre-entry closed shops and, and, and matters of that nature that we, we all we all know there's a legal question about and, and, and uh, matters of that nature. But, you know, Kevin's um, proposition about that he's mentioned about, uh, you know, one of the core issues at the heart, perhaps, of, of the, the, the ambition here is that, you know, employers would listen, obviously, to, to people's views and obviously that with trade unions having a role in that. And I suppose for me, that's kind of at the kernel of some of this, because we know there's lots of ways employers want to listen to people's views, uh, whether it's around a change project or, or, or some, some some other initiative that's been taken or if it's around changes to uh, pay and conditions, whatever, whatever that may be. Um, and I think one of the fundamental kind of challenges is that our system, our industrial relations system in all its respects um, has tended understandably because obviously of the, the provenance of our system back to the establishment of the court in 46, etc. The, 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 the collective bargaining edifice has tended to take a predominance in that. Uh, with the support over the years of the of, of Congress and, and the employer bodies and so on. Um, but over time, we also have to recognize that there is a majority of businesses in the private sector who are operating sophisticated direct engagement models 
and who are choosing to listen to their views of their employees using a different model, right? And the challenge is, you know, how do you bring about change that addresses the concerns that the trade unions have without doing damage to that culture? Mm. Now, the other thing then I would say is that um, we also have to recognize that, look, we've already built up a very sophisticated regulatory regime, for want of a better way of putting it, that, um, you know, promotes collective bargaining uh, uh, in, in one sense, prohibits anti-union discrimination, you know, puts a range, put a, we, we already have arrangements in place around anti-victimization and so on. And, you know, I remember being uh, uh, one of those soldiers that was involved in the establishment of the uh, the, the, the 2001 Act. Um, and and it's important, I suppose, and, and this is an interesting point because that was an Irish solution to an Irish problem uh, in, in, in short order, where on the one hand, what was being said, uh, as I'm paraphrasing now, uh, trade unions wanted the opportunity to represent their members in uh, organizations where there wasn't established collective bargaining arrangements. Uh, employers were saying we are opposed to any form of mandatory trade union recognition uh, and an obligation to concede collective bargaining, etc. Uh, and we found a way uh, through the industrial relations uh, legislation to construct a modus uh, operandi that allowed those trade unions where they, where it wasn't the practice of the employer to engage in collective bargaining, to represent their members uh, and to have a any dispute over the uh, fairness or otherwise of the terms and conditions that were at issue or whatever for that for that to be assessed. But on the strict condition uh, that uh, an outcome to that could not be a recommendation, for example, in favour of collective bargaining. And, you know, and we all know that uh, worked reasonably well in the er in the early days uh, and then it ran into various legal uh, challenges and difficulties and has been further revised uh, through the course of the uh, as a result then of the changes in, in, in 2015. But I suppose a key point, however, in all of this is that the whole notion here about the engagement and, you know, Kevin is right. You can't force people to agree to things that they don't want to agree. Um, and, you know, but at the same time, we have fallback mechanisms in place. Uh, and there are there are consequences for em employers in, 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 in particular who fail to engage in bona fide collective bargaining, whether that's uh, you know, around we've preclusion around discrimination, uh, penalization of employees, the victimization piece, offering incentives to abandon entitlements under any of those legislation in terms of people's entitlements of freedom association and, and and all of that, which is only only right and proper. But as I say, the, 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 the real concern here is that if there is a further squeeze on voluntarism, as we currently know it, and, as, and it's already under pressure, let's be honest, right? Um, there is a, a there is a danger that that is targeted purely at the private sector and has unintended consequences for those employers who are actually practicing good ER practice, albeit not through the, the, the modus operandi of traditional collective bargaining. And that's the concern. 
That concludes the first episode of our Are We Heading Towards Some Form of Mandatory Union Recognition in Ireland podcast. Listen out for the second episode in the series, where we'll chat to Brendan McGinty and Kevin Duffy once again on this topic, but taking a particular focus on the IR Act 2015, the so-called right to bargain legislation, and discuss why it remains largely unused. We'll also explore the reasons for the shifts in trade union strategy to focus on the European dimension. 